Hey there, and welcome to the Refuge Podcast. We're a podcast at Crossroads Community Church in Nampa, Idaho. And here at the church, we believe in being a place of refuge, transformation, and partnership with God. My name's Charlie, and I'm a pastor here at the church. And I'm Scott, and I'm one of the partners here at Crossroads. And today we're talking about the resurrection. Mm. Have you heard of it? Uh, no, no, I've never heard of it. What do you know about it? It's a pretty, uh, it's not a really well-known doctrine of the yeah. church. No, we uh, talked about it last week with uh-huh. Beth, and she did a great job uh, really opening up the resurrection and what it means. And then Jim kind of brought it and really uh, wrapped it up, the rest of those passages about the resurrection. And one of the things he talked about is isms, all the different isms. And I don't know if you're familiar with the movie uh, Ferris Bueller. Yes. When he's in the shower, he talks about, uh, you know, I don't believe in isms. I believe in me, the quote from John Lennon. Or, you know, I believe in the Beatles. I believe in me. And really about all these fascism, all these, I don't care about isms. And I don't know if there's a whole lot of Christian wisdom in Ferris Bueller, but huh. I did agree with that part. That, you know, I don't really care about the isms. And the isms that Jim mentioned were materialism, rationalism. Uh, empiricism. Empiricism and romanticism. Yeah, um, those are very um, un- un-Christian um, philosophies. And so they're, it's, it's good to study them. Uh, it's good to know them, be aware of them, and to know where they get it wrong. Hmm. Uh, that's vital to be able to know that. Would it be helpful to, you know, most people listen to the message, and I think Jim talked about it, but just a quick definition, right? Materialism is the belief that everything that is observed and observable is, you know, the, the material world is everything, is the right. totality, right? Right. Rationalism, the idea that, you know, rationality you know, ration that our, our reason can understand everything, right? Mm-hmm. My reason, yes. And then what about empiricism? Empiricism would be uh, that our knowledge, everything that we could know ultimately, uh, could be explained through the five senses. Right, uh, the empirical proof. The empirical proof. So and those three are pretty connected, right? Um, somewhat, yeah. Somewhat, yeah, you know, Especially material materialism world. and empiricism, empiricism yeah. Empiricism, right. Uh, rationalists can kind of get in the fight with empiricism sometimes. That's true. They can, they can get a little off into the, into the weeds. Right. Right. And then romanticism. Oh, boy. Romanticism, uh, this one I'm, I'm not quite as familiar with as some of the others. Uh, I know it was big in the 19th century, mid-19th century, um, and, um, but... I know it was uh, not totally materialistic, and uh, they were trying to bring forth some sort of a spiritual connection. Right. Um, but it certainly wasn't a Christian connection by any right. means. It was some sort of a generic spiritual connection. Right. But romanticism is not, you know, romance. No, no, no. Yeah. It's always good for people to know, maybe, if the only thing you hear is romance, we're not talking about <clears throat> just a good romance novel. Right. No, but uh, Jim dives into all of those in this in this message and, and really does a great job kind of shaping this idea of how the the resurrection really answers all of those and, and proves all of those uh, that they can't be fully true. And there's elements for sure. God's given us reason. God created the material world. Uh, he's given us evidences, and, you know, I would say God is a romantic but God also um, has a bigger story to tell. And Jim's going to tell a little bit of that this morning. And then, and then we'll get together and we'll talk about it. 
It's a, it's a great day in the Lord, though. I tell you what, first service was just a powerful time with God's people, and uh, I can tell already that uh, hearts are ready to hear the word. You know, I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that, uh, that there are people in this world who don't want to hear truth. But I'm more convinced than ever before that people really want to know truth. And our attempt to gather here each week is, is like I said at communion time, is, is a time to glorify God. And then it's to open the word and let the word speak. And so we've been walking through this series called Staying Focused in a Jumbled World. And it's a series based on the city, the church of Corinth, the two letters. And we're probably reading in between the maybe three or four letters that were written to Corinth. And we're getting a feel for what they're going through. And we, we've been looking at the five main issues of Corinth. Last week, we started talking about the resurrection. And, uh, and Beth brought something up that I wanted to, 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 to talk about a little bit. And, and she says, it seems like the burden of proof is on those who believe in the resurrection today rather than those who don't. Um, although you could very easily argue, evidence-wise, we have more evidence from that Doc, from that time in history than any of the other documents that we depend on as truth um, outside the church. So why do we feel like we need to do this? So if you go to the newsstand at the supermarket, you're going to find, especially right now, this time of year, all sorts of magazines that are going to tell you that you need to buy this magazine because there's a new revelation. There's a new uh, insight into Jesus and who he was. And the question, of course, is, was he resurrected? There will be many, many attempts that the world will make to try and explain the supernatural from a mindset that is not only just natural, but doesn't believe in the supernatural. Did you catch that? We cannot come to this study of resurrection and approach it from that standpoint. There is no supernatural. This idea of resurrection is supernatural. But Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. Remember, this is a church of about five years old. It is the wealthiest of all the churches Paul planted. These people who started off in poverty are now making a name for themselves. And they're fascinated by the philosophies of the world. They've come out of paganism, and now they're, they're beginning a church, and they've brought a lot of that stuff in. And Paul is trying to help them understand what the truth is so that they might not only live for Christ, but love one another. The resurrection is one of the issues that Paul talks about, though. But what he's saying to them is this. You need to understand what the truth is. Don't be taken away by all of the philosophies of the world. Now, that's always been the case. We today are bombarded in this world that we live in by all sorts of philosophies that are not Christian. How do we... Stay focused, then, in a jumbled world like this. You know, even, even to the letter to the church at Colossae, Paul wrote these words. He said, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world, rather than on Christ. What does that mean? I mean, how, how do you do that? What, how, how can you identify that? But notice the two things he says. There. The first one is hollow and deceptive philosophy. What he means by that is this, this idea that don't be impressed by what sounds smart, especially when it's not. Eloquence 
and, and, and the ability to persuade is not necessarily truth. Paul himself was probably not the most persuasive preacher. He's saying, don't be carried away. Don't be entertained. Don't be deceived just because it sounds good. But he says, he doesn't just say that. He says it's, it, they're elemental spiritual forces. What, what does that mean? Basic elements of creation is what he means, is, is whenever any philosophy uh, um, tries to teach a truth apart from Christ, what they've essentially done is taken something that is part of creation and they've elevated it to the ultimate truth. Now, uh, before we get into the, the, the Corinthian letter here, we need to understand what Paul is saying so that we can better understand this whole idea of resurrection. Nancy Piercy, in her book, um, uh, Finding Truth, said, most philosophies are born when someone stumbles on one of the undeniable facts of human experience and then claims to have discovered the ultimate infallible foundation of all knowledge. She also says this in her book, look for the idol. Look for the idol. We've taken something that is created and we've elevated it to ultimate truth. We can do that with love. We can do that with, with uh, philosophy. We can do that with all sorts of things. And we call this the ultimate truth. Now, <clears throat> what was going on there it was a, a church that was trying to grow up in Christ but being bombarded by pagan philosophy. How do we, how do we relate that? Today, and I want to be brief on this, so I don't want to spend too much time, um, but, but we face it the same kind of thing. For instance, materialism. Now, materialism says basically stuff is God. In other words, there's no supernatural. It starts with that basis. So it knows what you can touch and taste and feel, and, you know, that, that's real. What you can't see, that's not real, so we can't, we can't talk about that. Now, you're thinking, well, what's good about that? Well, actually, God called creation good. So what is created is good. It's not bad. God loves his creation. When he stepped back and said it's good, it's good. The bad side of that, though, is, is that when thinking that material universe is God, uh, um, then we say physics and chemistry and biology explain everything. The only reality is the natural world. Anything supernatural outside the bounds of physics, chemistry, and biology is therefore imagined or made up or personal opinion. Now, we see that permeating our culture today. There's no supernatural. It's what we can test. Have you ever tried to, to, to take love into a laboratory and explain it? Yeah. All right. Rationalism, that's another one. Again, the basis, there's no supernatural, but my thinking is God. Um, the good of that is that God says, come let us reason together. He gave us the ability to interact with him and grasp some things that are not understandable apart from him. That's why Paul says that, 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 that the world considers the word of God foolish because they look at it and it doesn't make sense to them because they don't have the spirit of Christ in them. But have you noticed this? When you came to Christ, you begin to open this word and all of a sudden things made sense that didn't make sense before. Why? It's the spirit who inspired the word now living in you to understand the word. So there's some things that, that God invites us to, so that's good. Now, the bad side of that, of course, is that ideas known by reason alone are the sole source of knowledge. That's what they think. I think clearly, so I'm no longer bound by restrictions and bondage of religion. The self rules. So any outside influence can be stripped away as man-made, restrictive, or bondage. So that's kind of that idea. There's also empiricism, which is kind of like naturalism, but it's, it's the one who discovers rules, right? 
This is the person who, who discovers uh, uh, the, new, the new truth through, through uh, uh, um, testing. So there's no supernatural, natural, the smartest one rules. Now, the good of that is that Jesus did say, believe based on the miracles that you've seen. But then he follows that with this, but blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Jesus understands sometimes we need proof, okay? But what he's also saying is that sometimes you're not going to have it but it's still true. See, the, 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 the bad side, though, is they think that reality is that which can be proven by weight and measure. The algorithm, the test tube, the microscope guides us to truth. Morals and values, though, can't be tested. Therefore, they're relegated to just opinion. There's romanticism. The creative process is God. The creative mind defines reality and orders the chaos of life. I'd love to spend some time on this one. <clears throat> um, because when we think about in the ancient culture, it's very similar to today, that those who are the creative ones tend to think that they have really defined life, okay? Now, the, the good side of this, though, is that creativity is an extension of God's image in us. Why? Because he's a creator. And if we're created in his image, it stands the reason we would be creative. In fact, I believe that the closer we draw to the, to the, uh, uh, the image of God... Uh, the more creative we'll, be, we'll, we'll become. I, I believe that. In fact, I, I believe that the church has been afraid of the arts, and we need to take it back. The ultimate artist himself is he in whom we've been created, see. But the bad side of this is that assuming the mind is what gives the world order, the artist explains the, and orders chaos and is therefore the creator. They tell you what truth is. Now, you, the theater was the main way that happened in the ancient world. <coughs> Do movie stars do that today? Okay, <clears throat> I'll move on. Um, Paul had a biblical worldview. That was his worldview. And the good is, is that he didn't substitute the creator for the created. The creator remains the creator. And the created is not something we worship. There is no idol in a biblical worldview. The only one we worship is God. And that's the where Paul comes from. And what he's saying here is, is, is that, that therefore God defines the meaning of not just the life to come, but the life now. It's simply that. So what does that have to do with the resurrection? Well, let's go back to the Garden of Eden. What was the temptation that Adam and Eve faced from the lips of Satan? If you eat this fruit that you say, God forbid, he knows that you will become like him. So he's holding out on you. And the temptation, therefore, is, oh, I want to be God. I want to be just like him. I want to be the master of my destiny. I don't want to have to need God. I, don't, I want to be autonomous. And so we ate. It's the same temptation we faced up until 2019 and beyond until Jesus returns. It is the same temptation. I want to be like God. I want to explain life apart from God, so I will come up with all sorts of isms to do that. And they're always empty. They're always empty. What Paul turns that whole temptation with the resurrection by saying, you 
aren't going to be like God. You can't be God, but you will be like Jesus in the resurrection. And then he begins to unpack it. You see, the first one requires you to leave God and be autonomous. This one requires you to adhere to God. So he, he explains the practical aspect of the resurrection. And he gets extremely practical. Beth used this last week. I just want to read this again so we remember what Paul is saying. He says, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. There you go. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. And your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In this case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone else in the world. We are fools. You see, what Paul is saying here is this. You can't kind of sort of believe in a resurrection-y type thing. You either believe in the resurrection or you don't. And if you believe in the resurrection, it changes everything. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Corinthian church. Again, the richest church he ever planted. There's a problem in Corinth. You're going to see it throughout the letter, and that is division in the body. Most of the division is between the rich and the poor. Why? Because the rich had bought into the pagan philosophy of the afterlife. The pagan philosophy of the afterlife is if you are rich and powerful on earth, you will experience the afterlife. If you're not, eh, sorry. Now, if that's creeping into your belief system, what do you think you'd devote your time and attention to, being rich and powerful? In fact, archaeologists have not found anywhere else in the world when they uncovered, they've, they've uncovered more buildings with self-imposed inscriptions. I built this, I did this, I did that. You know, some of us will get a building named after us someday, maybe. They named buildings after themselves because they were Roman and they boasted and they were rich and powerful and they believed in this pagan idea of the afterlife and Paul says, oh no, that's not what it's all about. It's about the resurrection and it's about loving one another. Hmm, okay. Well, let's get practical. What does that mean? First of all, the reason I believe in the resurrection is because Jesus told us, you can look it up yourself, Luke 24, 46, he told us that he would die and rise again. Is Jesus a liar? If he is, we're wasting our time here. I do not believe he was a liar. God does not lie. Jesus said, I will die and rise again. Right there, the case is closed for me. Okay? He said he would. But second of all, we also have evidence of witnesses. Now remember, when the letter's being written, these witnesses are all still alive. He appeared to disciples and non-disciples. Not just to the disciples, but people who didn't believe. Do you know that Jesus' own brother, James, did not believe Jesus was the Messiah? <laughs> I mean, come on. You're raised with him. Mom always loved you more. She, I mean, she thought you walked on water. I mean, come on. 
He doesn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. And Jesus shows up and goes, booyah. I mean, that would be so amazing. I would love to have been there. James is like, oh. But you know what's fascinating is James becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem. <laughs> That's called transformation right there. And do you know what his nickname was, according to church history? Old Camel Knees. Why? Because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer for the church. Huh. I love that. But over 500 disciples and non-disciples. You know, it's really hard to deny all of the people who said, I saw it, I touched him. But, but what's even more fascinating, if you go back and you read the resurrection account, is, is the way God did it. The Jewish culture did not look up to women. Women were not considered trustworthy witnesses. It was radical that Jesus actually had women as his disciples. Totally radical. But Jesus... God, through Jesus, chooses to announce the resurrection by telling who? Women. And not just any women. One of them, in particular, who was well known to have been delivered of seven demons. You can't make that stuff up in a culture that wouldn't believe, and that's how he does it. Even the disciples didn't believe when the women came back and said, it's happened. But they begin to see. They were witnesses. And if it's true, we too will be resurrected. 2 Corinthians 4.14 says, we know that God who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself together with you. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, he has conquered death. Therefore, we do not need to experience the spiritual death promised that would happen to us because of sin. He broke the curse. Hallelujah. We will experience resurrection. And we think, oh, that's great. Someday, that'll be awesome. But is that what Paul is talking about? Does he think that the resurrection is something that someday we'll experience? No. He thinks it radically transforms us now. Why? Because the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is now what? living in you. Wow. Something's going on inside. Changing. That's what he means. He's not talking about immortality. You know, the, he uses the word immortality in 1 Corinthians 15, I think it's 53. Because this is a Greek culture. They thought in terms of mortal, immortal. But with the idea of Greek mortal and immortality is that the spirit somehow just kind of migrates into this thing called afterlife. So the body doesn't really matter. The body is just a hindrance. That's never the way God created us. When he created us, he called it good. God does not consider this a hindrance. This matters. Why? Because when Jesus came back, he said, here, touch me. See the scars in my hands? By the way, do you have anything to eat? Spend some time, if you want, on what Jesus did between the resurrection and the ascension. When the Bible says we will be like him, there you go. That's what it looks like. That's what it's going to look like when we experience the resurrection. You'll still be you. Why? Because you matter. Your matter matters to God. Now, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like. That's the mystery of it all. But somehow I'm going to know it's you and you're going to know it's me. 
And we're thinking, oh, come on, really? I was hoping for like a glorified body that would just be like glorious, you know? But I think we need to take a pause and realize that what God sees as beauty is not the way we measure beauty. And God, God, oh man, I wish I could go off into teaching on this thing about we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I don't have time for that, but we, we, all that to say, he sees you as beautiful. <laughs> but I'm going to know you. You're going to know me. That's what it means. Huh. But what he means is not immortality, but when the perishable gives way to the imperishable. In other words, when this sarcos, this flesh, that decays, that is destroyed by sin, is going to give way to that which will not any longer be touched by sin. It will not decay. Somehow, some way, it will still be me, and yet it will last, and you will too. See? So what Paul is trying to say is because that's true, the body matters which means the way I live now in the flesh matters. That's what he means. He's saying this to a bunch of people taken in by the philosophy of the world that says, hey, as long as your spirit goes to heaven, your body can do whatever it wants. And they were living selfishly instead of selflessly. 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 4 says, then our dying bodies have been, when they've been transformed into bodies that will never die. The scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Hmm. That's why 1 John, that's what John says in first, his first epistle. Dear friends, we're already God's children, but he's not shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. <laughs> You're gonna be like him. You're gonna be like him. And why? Why is Paul saying this? He says, because it matters how I live. It matters how I live, not only towards Christ, but towards you. Why? He's talking to a church divided deeply by rich and poor and by people who are living selfishly instead of selflessly. How I live now matters. John Stott said it this way, I like it. He said, it's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to, play, to, to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, I can't. It's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it, I can't. However, if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. And guess what? The same spirit who raised him from the dead is now living in us. So the way we live matters. We can do the things that we can't do. Did you catch that? Because Christ lives in us. And if Christ lives in us, Christ can live through us. So you see, the resurrection is all about not just understanding what it's going to be like someday when we die. As a pastor, that's probably one of the most difficult things that I have to do, and that is stand by when someone passes from this life to the next. But I will say it's probably even harder when I sit with a couple, like I did recently, younger than us, younger than Dory and I, as they're facing a doctor's announcement. 
and one of them is trying to think, how am I going to live on my own? Now, we do not grieve, the Bible says, as those who have no hope. We grieve like those who have hope. We still grieve, but we have hope. It's, it's a wonderful thing to, to know that the, 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 the Bible says to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. That's wonderful. But if the resurrection doesn't make sense to me today, I might be tempted to think it's not that important. And what Paul is saying is, it is everything to us right now. It matters. You see, Paul's a Hebrew. And when he comes to words like righteousness, and he, you might think when he's talking about, well, we need to live righteously. When we, when we hear that word righteous, I don't know how many of you were raised in the church. Um, I was raised in the church. And I'm not blaming here, okay? Please understand. I'm not blaming because I probably have also been guilty of doing this, not just receiving this. Focusing in on righteousness as what we do to be good kids. Got to read my Bible. Got to pray. Got to give... Money, I gotta go to church, I gotta, I gotta do, 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 do I gotta cross the T's, I gotta dot the I's. I gotta, righteousness is about my life in Christ. And I can be so focused on that that I actually can walk right past those who need my love and attention because I'm so focused on being righteous. Is that what Paul is talking about? Remember who the church is that he's talking to. He's talking to a church who is divided down the middle on many, many issues. And why? Because they're living for themselves instead of for Christ and one another. So when he talks about this, he's not just talking about, you guys really need to be better at reading your Bibles. You really need to be. No, he's talking about a righteousness from a Hebrew perspective. What does that mean? When we look at the word righteous in the Old Testament, oftentimes the word that is used is a word called, uh, uh, where did I write that down? I wrote it down. Yeah, sedek, S-E-D-E-Q, sedek. Sedek is translated by our English translations as justice most of the time. But if you look it up in its original language, it actually means righteousness. Go to Deuteronomy 16.20, and God's talking to the people of Israel as they're about ready to cross into the promised land. He says, now, if you want to enjoy the promised land, if you want all the benefits of what I have promised you, do this, do justice and justice alone. Go to the word. What is the word? Sedek. What does that mean? Do righteousness and righteousness alone. Why? Because the two are two sides of the same coin. There is no such thing in the Hebrew mindset of a righteousness that is also not, or that is not also just. There is no such thing as me being concerned about my own walk with Christ and not being concerned about your walk with Christ. I, I gotta care. I gotta be concerned. I believe 
Paul is saying this body matters. And we're being changed. This is why he says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. There's growth happening in us. Hopefully we are maturing in Christ. This is exactly what he also says in 3.18, and the Lord, who is a spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. I love what one translation says, we are being daily renewed in his image. If we're being daily renewed in his image, doesn't it stand to reason that we're also being daily unrenewed in someone else's image? My image. In other words, if we're walking with Christ, I'm going to look a little bit more like Jesus every day and a little less like Jim. And the goal is that you would too. See? Why? Because the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is what? Living in us. Philippians tells us it's to will and to act according to his good purposes. In other words, he's doing a change in me from the inside out. And so Paul brings in this idea of change and living our lives not for ourselves, but for others and for Christ. And he uses this idea of righteousness. And when we think about righteousness from his angle, what he means is justice. I got to care about me, but I got to care about you. I cannot be a growing person in Christ and care only about me. That's what he means. This is Tim Keller um, talked about this. He said, when most modern people see the word righteousness in the Bible, they tend to think of it as in terms of private morality, such as sexual chastity or diligence in prayer and Bible study. But in the Bible, sedek refers to day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, uh, and, and equity. Now, now, of course, the danger, of course, is that we could, we could elevate justice over righteousness and make justice an ism. Because it's a part of what we're supposed to do, but all of a sudden we, be, we think justice is it. Well, justice is important. But it's the side of the other side of the coin of righteousness. Which is why I believe that if you're really going to do justice in the world, you also got to talk about who gave us the command to do justice the one who calls us to put on Christ's righteousness. See? Hmm. Sadek. That's why John says, if someone says, I love God but hates a Christian brother, that person's a liar. Oh, ouch. Yeah. I, uh, if I'm in Christ, if, if the Spirit of God is living in me, he's transforming me daily, renewing me in his image, you matter to me. It doesn't matter if you're different than me. It doesn't matter if, if our skin color is the same or if our education is the same or if our socioeconomic level is the same. It, none of that matters. What matters is the fact that you and I have been created amago day in the image of God. Do I see Jesus in you? Do you see Jesus in me? There's where our value and identity is. Even people who don't see that, they still need to be loved as if we're loving Jesus. Wow. So you see, resurrection moves us out of selfishness into the kingdom of love. That's what Paul's saying. And he's, he's speaking to this church, saying you guys got to understand the value of one another. We're going we're gonna to unpack the worship experience together next week. And man alive, that's exactly what's happening. They're just fighting. 
Corinthians were not believing in the resurrection, and they disregarded one another and the poor among them. So, so what do, how do we apply this? What, what's the practical application of this? Jesus was raised, sin is conquered, and we will be raised to be like him. Period. But the same power that raised him is now living in us. Therefore, is the resurrection changing us from the inside out? That's the question. Am I self-focused or am I because I'm secure in my identity in Christ, others focused? Not to earn. Can't be earned. He earned it for us. But in a secure place, out of that, do I love? I'll just, I'll just confess right now. Not as well as I need to. But better than I used to. And hopefully, nowhere near what I'll be like at some point. Why? This one thing I do, Paul says, I forget what is behind, I strive towards what is ahead. But I've learned to be content. This is not a place to beat yourself up. It's a place to stop and go, hmm, do I believe in the resurrection? Either I do or I don't, and if I do... I'm in Christ. If I don't, I'm not in Christ. Hmm, okay. You gotta make that one, figure that one out. But if I do believe, then that power is not just something that I'm going to experience someday when I die. It's a power that transforms me now. Is the Holy Spirit doing that in me? Do I find myself growing in love for people that I didn't used to love? There's a good sign that the resurrection is happening. See, that's what Paul's saying. That's all he's saying. So how do we live this out in light of the truth? Righteousness and justice are two sides of the same coin. If I care about my relationship with Jesus, I must care about my relationship with you. That's it. Am I living my life with fairness and generosity and equity, especially for those who are marginalized? Why would I say that? Because, well, God cares about the marginalized. He does. How do I stay focused in this jumbled world? I know the truth. And I hang on to it. And I let the truth change me from the inside out. Practically speaking as a church, uh, Love, Inc., we help them out. That's great. Crisis Pregnancy, we help them out. Nampa Justice Center, we help them out. That's great. We give backpacks away to kids who can't afford them. Great. We have refuge counseling, 600 counseling hours a month going on there between the two centers. Great. Is there more to do? Oh, man, Yes. So much more. We do that as a church, but we do that individually because why? Because our mission is to lift up a world that God loves. And it starts right here, right here in the body of Christ. Do we value one another? Or do we measure one another? You know what? We're so impressed by silly things clothes, education, bank accounts. I don't think God's so impressed because he looks on the heart. God, give us the ability to see the heart. 
and not measure. Because if the resurrection is true in my mind, it must be true in my heart. It's not some doctrine kicked around by scholars in an ivory tower in some distant seminary. It's an essential tenet of what it means to be Christian. And it transforms what we believe about the life to come and the way we live this life now. The resurrection is not, please, 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 it is not a dusty doctrine. It is so relevant to the way we are called to live as Christ in the world. Yeah, he really did well. Not only tackling those, tackling the resurrection, um, but really some cool Hebrew understandings. And one of the things that he really talked about is this idea that the body matters. It was a very popular Greek idea and really one of the first kind of heresies that the church had to deal with was this Gnosticism, this idea that, you know, only the spirit matters and the body doesn't matter. And a lot of these Corinthians were saying, well, what what does it matter what my body's doing? You know, well... It matters. The body matters. And that's the wonderful thing I think that uh, Christ bring to it uh, he, is that he said, no, the, the, the body does matter. I think it could lead us to horrific consequences by saying, well, only the spirit matters. The body doesn't matter a bit. And I, I can't imagine where that could lead us to if we consistently practice that out. Um, and I think uh, Jesus Christ uh, was the one who came and said, you know, the spirit exists, okay? Spirit exists. Obviously, we know the body exists, but the spirit doesn't cancel out the body. Mm. Your body, it matters what you do. It, your body affects the spirit. Mm. Um, and I mean, even our neuroscientists know that our, our, the way we think, the way we live, our habits can have uh, impressions on our brain. And yeah. so it affects uh, our spirit lives, affect our body. And our body affects our spirit uh, because when our brain is affected, that, that makes it more natural for us to be able to, to uh, undertake those behaviors. Yeah, I think it's important to know that, you know, Christianity, both the Old and the New Testament, reject the idea that our bodies are just kind of a vehicle for our spirits and our minds. You know, one of the cool things, the the Bible Project, and we always like talking about the Bible Project here, they just do incredible, incredible work. But they do a word study on the word soul. And they dive into the word soul in the Old Testament is the word nephesh. And it really meant not just the body, not just the spirit, but a soul is both of those things together. And so when, like you're saying, I think when we're understanding in modern day science is that the brain affects the spirit, but also the spirit affects the brain. Yes. The brain is affected by our habits and our, our spirituality and how, and how we represent that. So that God has created that all to work together, that our ultimate reality is not us floating around in the clouds, kind of, you know, with no body, just chilling. No, he's going to create a new heaven, a new earth. Our bodies will be restored. But the, the ideal way that God meant us to work is, is with the body. That's exactly right. A perfected body, though. I'm pretty excited about that. I'm excited about my yeah. perfected body. Yeah, I'm a six-pack. <laughs> you think? Probably not. Probably still have to work for that. Darn it. <laughs>
Yeah, well, I guess we'll have to keep going to the gym. Yes, I think so. We will. That's all right. But <laughs> one of the things that he, that he also talked about is another Hebrew understanding is this idea of Hebrew uh, justice and righteousness. You know, because in our modern day, you know, Scott, when you hear the word justice in terms of how you grew up in the church, what do you think of? Because for me, Scott, growing up, justice and righteousness were very different ideas. Right. When I heard justice, I thought of like a courtroom almost like, oh, God is just. What does that mean? That means he's going to come and get angry at people who sinned. And, you know, but when I heard righteousness, I, I thought of kind of moral being morally good. What did you think when you thought of those words growing up? You know, I very much the same things that you did, um, that uh, the two are separated, that maybe we don't have to care about our fellow man. Um, God is only concerned, God is just concerned with the way you act. That's it. And um, so, yeah, I could easily see those two being separated um, as I was growing up, uh, just in the in the minds of, of uh, so many Christians in the past. Yeah, almost like if you're not righteous, then you get justice. You know what I mean? It's almost like a consequence. Yeah. But Jim really paints this picture of a Hebrew understanding that they're two sides of the same coin, that righteousness was justice. And uh, that, that when God wants to treat with us justly, he wants us to, to be righteous and just, to care for each other, and how justice and righteousness both have this really a feeling of caring for each other, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, and that's what we ultimately need to do. Uh, we need to care for each other. We need to be just. We need to be righteous. And I'm trying to think, is it possible to be one without the other? Hmm. Uh, to be truly just and truly righteous, and I... <laughs> I don't think so. I have Yeah, I don't think so either. I really don't. Yeah, and this is what Jim said about that. He said, when we understand that the, the body matters, that affects the way that I live in relationship with God in this righteous and just way, that resurrection moves us out of selfishness and into this kingdom of life and of love. And I thought that was so cool. And one of the other things he said about the resurrection, and it's a passage of scripture that, you know, some people have written songs about, but a lot of people don't understand is this idea that we will be like him. Mm. You know, we talked about this perfected body with the six-packs or maybe without the six-packs. We're not sure. But one thing that will be true is that we will be made like Christ. And that's such an interesting part of Scripture. We talk about our growing up with different ideas of justice and righteousness. I don't know if I fully understood that growing up, that part of our destiny, part of the new creation, is that we will be made like Christ. Yeah. If we want to know what we're going to be like, we look at what Jesus was like after his resurrection, and that's the clearest example of what we're going to be like uh, uh, when we have our resurrected bodies. I've heard it called Humanity 2.0. <laughs> I like that. Because we really are. We are going to be fulfilling the original role of humanity, that we will be serving with Christ. That instead of in the fall when we said, nope, God, we're going to do it on our own, instead of abiding in the presence of God, we said we're going to do it by our own. But now we're Humanity 2.0. We'll always be abiding in the presence of God. And living with these bodies that'll that'll last forever. It's pretty pretty cool. It is. It's a wonderful feeling to, to be able to look at what our resurrected bodies will look like uh, from the clues we have in scripture. Yeah. And to say, Wow, that's that's a waiting that's a waiting for us. Yeah. But one thing I love that Jim says is that we will be able to recognize each other. You know, so many times we get this kind of weird idea that we'll be unrecognizable, but you know, it says that the, the disciples recognize Jesus. So Scott, when I see you in the in, in heaven, I'll be able, hey Scott. Wow, that's him. Yeah. 
I'll know what you look like. That's right. Yeah. It's not that exciting. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> You'll know my voice. You'll be like, oh, Charlie, I thought you were much handsomer oh. than that. <laughs> no, but thanks, uh, thanks for joining us this week. And thank you, Pastor Jim, for a great message, uh, giving us something to look forward to in the new heaven, in the new earth, when we are, are made like Christ and where we can live in a place of righteousness and justice. And uh, we look forward to that day, and we look forward to seeing you next week as we continue our series, Staying Focused in a Jumbled World.